of the clouds Get your feet back on the ground Get stuck into pop culture We'd stick around Hello there and welcome to Stick Around The official podcast of Intergalactic Petrol Stations Sponsored by Cadbury's Nunch Because people like crunchy things and nuns. <laughs> uh, just to clarify, people, uh, the Nunts Bar is, I believe, South African for the Star Bar. Um, so it's essentially one of the greatest chocolate bars of all time. Um, any other fans of the Star Bar here? Yes, yeah, Star Bar's I, I find you rarely see them, though. Is that, is that accurate or not? Uh, well, the petrol station across the road from me sells them. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, the intergalactic petrol station is definitely going to have to have one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's going to sell exclusively Star Bars, Star Bars Milky Ways, um, <laughs> Nunches for the South Africans. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, it doesn't work as well in space. <laughs> By the way, speaking space of- nuns. <laughs> speaking of South African chocolate. Um, a few years ago, I bought 30 boxes of Astros, which would also be at the Intergalactic Petrol Station, <laughs> uh, from South Africa. Uh, does any... the, do they just have every Cadbury product going still swimming about that? Yeah, every discontinued Cadbury product, <laughs> I think. Um, I remember there being a rumour at school that uh, Astros were discontinued because they contained a faint amount of cannabis, uh, which can't have been right. But um... Doesn't seem credible, does it? No, but they were delicious. Which then led to them all selling out. <laughs> does, <laughs> does, everyone, does everyone remember them? Yeah, they were amazing. I just like the fact that a chocolate can be so amazing that people just assume it has hard drugs in it. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one thing that can explain this. <laughs> anyway, how are we all? How's it going? Um, all right, we're into week week four of lockdown. Yeah, nearly done four weeks, haven't we? It feels like oh, year yeah. four. Uh, <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah, time is. This is a this is when you realise that um, Einstein, bit of a genius, relativity of time. The time time is not <laughs> yeah. the same at all times. I hear what you say. Time- <laughs> hear what you're saying there, Clive. Uh, it's about time we started realising Einstein was a genius. It is, to be honest, because. I mean, Trump probably thinks he's an idiot. <laughs> Let's face it. Absolutely. <laughs> I sh- should clarify, um, Trump obviously, I don't know if, if people have heard, wants to turn Mars into an intergalactic petrol station. And uh, <laughs> we've secured a deal uh, to be the official podcast of that. Cut with Trump by uh, Michael Cohn, fresh out of prison. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true fact. So we're just going to play... It's just going to be playing the stick around back catalogue in this petrol station, <laughs> um, and selling only the products that we've been sponsored by. <clears throat> yeah, ex- except which is ex- which is baked bean pizzas. <laughs> I tell you, first, I tell, one, the first one that came to mind. I tell you, one of the products we won't be selling that we have sponsored in the past, Frubes. You're not being sold there. I'm still waiting for that final payment. <laughs> Yeah, we, we were sponsored by Froob for ages as well. Do you remember that Froob cocktail we, we invented? Yeah. Froob cocktail? Yeah, I can't remember why we did it, but... I think, I we, I think we just put some yoghurt in gin. <laughs> <laughs> was this at one of our stick-around events? It yeah, was. It was Stockton, yeah. Oh, I vaguely did. The only Stockton one so far, yeah. 
And that's why there's not been another one. <laughs> wow. Clive suppressed like... the memory of the Froobe cocktail. <laughs> ideas like that in our head. Um, to, any, to anyone who hasn't gathered, you're here for Stick Around, uh, the second of our lockdown episodes. Um, as usual, or as has now become usual, we'll be talking about all of pop culture. Um, I'm here with pop culture expert Michael Johnson. Yo. And pop culture expert Clive Fisher. Alrighty. Um, pop culture expert Dave Peeling is hanging, after having had a effectively virtual wedding. More will it be explained <laughs> later. Um, everybody's favourite controversial opinionator... That's not a word. Uh, Josh Keithley can't be here today, but he's asked us to pass on one of his opinions. And And it is an amazing one. I'm going to read this out, and then we're going to analyse it before we go on to the main part of the show. So, is everybody ready for this? You better prepare. (laughs) I'm ready, I'm ready. Brace yourself. Hit me. Danger Days, The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys by My Chemical Romance is one of the best albums of all time in any genre. Discuss. <laughs> I wish I'd heard it. I mean, um, I have heard it. It's a great album, but in my opinion, it's not even the best My Chemical Romance album. So. Ooh. <laughs> Which, oh, that shit's all over Josh's theory there, doesn't it? I'm afraid it does, yeah. <laughs> Would you say the best My Chemical Romance album is one of the best albums of all time in any genre? Uh, probably not, even though I do love it. <laughs> I do love the Black Parade, but we're talking lofty parades there, aren't we? Uh, however, however, the uh, the track "Welcome to the Black Parade" is my favourite song of the nineties. Oh, okay. It so, is a okay. It they, is do, an they do get banger. that. They do get that. Absolutely, it is a banger. I've not, despite just constantly mentioning it to me, and I keep meaning to, haven't still haven't listened to uh, my Chemical Romance album in full. Right. So I can't really comment on this, um, other than to say it's obviously wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's okay, Clive. Brackets, I promise. Um, let's move. Oh. <laughs> was, that, was that some sort of clever My it's Chemical Romance reference? It's not clever. It's not clever. More where that came from, I hope, because that's an amazing <laughs> Yeah, come back next time, guys. So if that's all you came for, in fact, we should have left that for the end of the pod. We're going to be losing listeners at this point. I was going to say, you're putting the best, the best bit first. <laughs> you're starting with a. Um, <laughs> Let's go for the second best bit. Um, Clive, what are you going to be talking about today? Shit. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about shit. Um, I'm going to mix it up a bit. I'm going to talk this week about some board games, which might be a bit of a theme. I was thinking, we're in lockdown. A lot of us are in lockdown with a special other person or someone else that we might hate. Or just just someone else, maybe. Maybe it's just maybe it's just happened. Unfortunately, lockdown came. You're like, oh shit, <laughs> I'm stuck with this person now. Can't really leave. It's not essential, <laughs> even though it would be convenient. Um, so I'm going to talk about some some good two player games that I think that are a easy to buy because they're on. I was going to say Amazon then, but they're on other things as well, not just the the mighty con- conglomerate. Um, and they're pretty simple to get. Like you don't have to be a board game aficionado to, to get them, and they're just fun. So good, good way to spend some time without staring at a screen. Because I feel like everyone's staring at lots of screens, aren't they? It's all about house party, working. Uh, pretty much, if you're working from home, you're probably doing conference calls. It's a lot of screen. So 
This is just to give your eyes some rest. Clive Fisher's here to give your eyes some rest. So the first game I'm going to talk about is Onitama. I'm going to pronounce it. It could be Onitama, which is a... Uh, I was going to do this all professionally and do like who designed it, but I haven't researched it. Um, so I'm just going to do that now. And then I'll edit it out a minute. No, 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 no. Uh, this is thrilling um, podcastery. <laughs> This is, yeah, this is DIY podcastery. <laughs> Your ad block has been updated. Not now. <laughs> oh, this is the authentic experience. This is the part of the show where we listen to a man struggle to circumvent an update. <laughs> <laughs> I just want the Wikipedia page. Right, okay. Um, it's created by Japanese game designer Shinpei Sato and launched by Arcane Wonders. Uh, in Germany, for those who need to know, the, the game was launched by Pegasus Games. You're welcome. I'm here to give you the biggest facts and the most important facts. Um, Onitama is most closely resembles a game that you might have all have heard of, chess. Um, it's a, I think it's a five by five board instead of you know chess has got loads of grid things on it. It's big. It's a big board. And this is a smaller board, but you've got a, um, it's two two players like I've said. You've got a red team and a blue team. You've got your master. <laughs> Uh, and two students, so you can think of it as like a king and, uh, sorry, four students, a king and four pawns, and the other team's got the same. They start, like, the king starts in the middle, um, the pawn's right next to either side, so there's none of that, like, chess thing where you're like, oh, I can't remember where the horse goes, or the bishop, or any of that stuff. <laughs> this is really simple. Um, and the aim of the game is basically to either take the opponent's king, or to end up in the space that the king starts. If you get your one of your pieces all the way across the board into the um, spot where the king starts, as it is in the middle of their side of the board, basically, um, then you also win the game. And the thing that's a bit different than chess is a there's less pieces, but you've got five cards that say on them like a move that you can do. So you'll have one player will have two cards, the other player will have two cards, and there'll be one card in the middle. Um, the two cards might be called something like I don't know. They're called after like martial arts moves. I think like cobra and uh, the crane. Things like that. And it'll show you on that card where you can move. So that the crane, for example, I can remember vividly in my head because it looks a bit like a crane. Uh, you can move one step backwards or you can move diagonally to the right, diagonally to the left. Um, if you, say, decide, oh, I want to move one, you can choose to use that card on any of your pieces. So I might go, I want to move one of my pawns diagonally to the right using the crane. And you, then you've used that card. That then goes into the middle. Um, and then you pull whichever card was in the middle to start with into your hand. And then next go, the other player uses their two cards, picks one, moves whichever one they want to move, and then puts that one into the middle. So you're constantly like swapping the cards around the board as you go. Um, which means that you can always see what the other player's got, and obviously this is the exact same five cards the entire game. So you can see, okay, well that player can only move like that this go, so I'm going to do that. Uh, but then you've got to be careful, because if I do that, then in a couple of turns he's going to have the card that I've just used. Is that going to help him? Etc. Um, which it's just really, really simple because A, it tells you exactly on the cards where you can move, so you don't need to worry about um, knowing where certain pieces can move, like in chess. <coughs> and there's just less options. Chess is... Uh, I love chess. It's a great game. The only problem is that if anyone's good at chess, it's pointless playing them because they're going to beat your ass because they know if you do this, oh, I'll just do that. There's lots of stuff. If you know how to play chess well, you're probably always going to win. Um, this isn't really like that because... <clears throat> your strategy has to change based on what the cards are. There are about 16 cards in total, and at the start of the game, at random, you pick five, and they're the five that you play with, so every game's going to be a little bit different. Um, and you've got to base your strategy a bit on what the cards are, so 
a good example might be sometimes you can move right in front of another person's player because they might not have a card next go that means that they can take you if you do that. Whereas other times that might be a terrible idea if they've got a card where they can just take your uh, pawn if they do that. Uh, so it's a lot about seeing what the other person's got, seeing what you've got, and seeing which one's in the middle and is going to be uh, you're going to be able to use next. So you've only really got to look at five things every go and just kind of figure it out. So it's not too bad; it doesn't take too long. It's a lot simpler than chess. It's um, more varied because every game's a bit different, like I've said. Um, it's just a really good game, dead easy to set up, and it is currently pretty. Much, it's a really easy game to buy because it's. Uh, I think one of those that gets reprinted all the time because it's really popular. It costs about 20 quid, and in my opinion, it's well worth it. The production's really good. The mat's like a roll mat, so you can like roll it out, which is pretty cool. The little pieces are chunky plastic pieces, satisfying to move around. And the cards are made of a lovely cardboard. Um, oh, and it's got a strong box, strong box, which is always important. <laughs> Feels nice to open. It's got a magnet in it. Oh, everyone likes a magnetised box. Maybe... Oof. Clive, um, can I interrupt a second? Um, no. Well, I'm going to anyway. Um, <laughs> maybe I've misheard you, but I'm assuming this is two-player only. Yeah, that's right. Um, it is the, the two games I'm talking about are two-player only. Next week, I might talk about some more. Because um, I feel like most people who are with locked up with people are generally locked up with one other person. Yeah. Could be wrong there, but... It is, so this is two-player only, yeah. So that's the, I suppose, only negative thing. But I find sometimes that the games that are two-player only are really good two-players, because that's what they're designed for, so... Um, but yeah, this is just a really easy one. I'd recommend anyone to get it, really. It's a great way to uh, spend some time. The games themselves maybe take like 15 minutes each, so it's a great one. You can decide, okay, well, let's have a game, and it might turn into three or four games. Or if you've not got much time, you can just uh, play the one game. Um, <clears throat> yeah, really recommend Onitama. And like I say, it's pretty easy to... And I'll, I'll mention at this point, there's a website called boardgameprices.co.uk. Just go on that, type it in, and it'll, sh- it'll tell you where it's cheapest, including shipping and stuff, so... Just use that and then go with that. Excellent. Um, I've actually been thinking about buying a two-player board game anyway because we're running out of things to do that don't involve TV. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. That's a, that's a good good recommendation. I, I don't think I know many two-player games. Um, I mean, I occasionally with my friends play a few board games uh, which are kind of multiplayer, uh, none of which I'm good at because I don't play them often enough. But um, yeah, interesting idea. Yeah, it's really, really. I love a game where you just like the actual the rules are dead simple, but there's a lot of depth to it, and this is one of those. Like it's a really simple. It feels like a classic game because it's just the rules are dead simple, like I say, and it's got a lot of depth to it. It's clever. And it feels like a lean design. It's not one of these designs where you think, "Oh my god, there's so much stuff going on here." <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of depth. But also, it's got a lot of depth because it's really complicated. This isn't one of those. Michael, anything to add? No, I'm not. I mean, um, my my appreciation of games of this sort is quite recent. Until last year, I hadn't really done it much. Um, but I do, now, now I do appreciate a good uh, a good game like this. So yeah, that's that sounds pretty fun. Cool. It's good. And the other thing to mention is it's not as forward planning as chess. I don't think it's more like planning in the moment because the cards are switching around so regularly. Whereas chess, I think, is a game where if you're good, you plan like six or seven moves ahead. Yeah. Which my brain can't do. I can plan one move ahead at most. (laughs) (laughs) That's my capacity. Can you remind me, remind us of the name, please, Clive? Yeah, it's Onitama, it's called. Can you spell that out, please? Yeah, O-N-I-T-A-M-A. Good point. Okay, folks, go and buy it. Um, we definitely <laughs> don't get a cut. Um, 
No, we don't. Right, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be really mad with the order here because uh, an off-the-cuff comment that Michael Johnson made a few weeks ago uh, bemoaned the fact that he never gets to go last. Normally, it's whoever's hosting <laughs> gets to go last. So I'm going to go mm. now, and then we're going to go last <laughs> on Michael Johnson. Give him loads of time and pressure to think about what he's going to say. Um, he's He's got a good memory, this lad. I reckon he could plan seven moves <laughs> <laughs> the kind of guy you might want to get to set up an intergalactic petrol station. Maybe, just maybe. That's the, that requires some forward thinking. Well, <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about a film that is, well, it's not a Netflix film, but it has been released, I believe, exclusively on Netflix, at least in this country. Um, it's a cult science fiction horror film um, that has been getting quite a lot of attention recently called The Platform. Um, directed by, and I'm going to absolutely butcher this, um, Galda uh, Gastulu Uratia. Uh, Michael, you work with Spanish people. Get them to double check how his name is said for me, please. Um, okay. So the film is set in a vertical tower block, or what they call in the film a vertical self management center, which is essentially a prison. Um, it has a lot of levels. I'm not going to reveal exactly how many because that would spoil part of the film, but it's hundreds. Um, on each level, two people live, uh, and going right through the middle of each level is a is a platform, so kind of a, a kind of levitating platform. It starts at platform one and it goes all the way down to the bottom. Um, it's filled, or at least on platform one, with um, layers upon layers of luxury food. Um, and if everybody takes an equal amount, uh, it will feed everybody platform to platform. But um, I, I'm pretty sure you don't have to be a political science uh, graduate to get the metaphor here. Um, it doesn't make its way through each level, essentially. Our main character, um, who is played by Ivan uh, Masig, again, get someone to double check my pronunciation there. Um, has voluntarily decided to go into this prison uh, for the promise of a qualification. Uh, he must survive a certain amount of months. So at the, on each month, you start on one level, you've got to survive that month, and then you are they get knocked out by gas, and then they appear on a new level, so they've got to almost strategize. Um, before I go on, had either of you heard about this? I know it's got a cult following now. No, I don't think I'd really... I think it might have been mentioned by someone, but I don't think I was aware that it had a sort of a committed following like that, no. Um, I've not heard of it, no. It sounds okay, well, it is a... I mean, obviously the concept itself is fairly science fiction, and it, it owes a lot to um, dystopian writing, such uh, as J.G. Ballard, most obviously with High Rise. Uh, I was going to say, yeah. Um, it also owes a lot to um, kind of Japanese horror, in terms of the the imagery, and in terms certainly in terms of the levels of violence and um, goriness, um, the film itself is not a hard one to crack thematically. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea is if everybody takes what they're supposed to take, everybody survives. But people are either too greedy or too afraid and not trusting of one another uh, to do that. Um, Despite this, the film really works. Um, in fact, I think there's something about the film's simplicity and lack of pretension, 
although some people would disagree with me there, um, that is its biggest selling point. Um, the film has a really closed-door narrative, is what I'd like to call it. Um, you know the stakes, you know the setup, you know it's not moving from this tower block, you know it's always in identical-looking rooms. Um, there aren't too many characters. Uh, everybody who is in it is well fleshed out. Um, and it's a riveting watch. Um, it's nasty. It's certainly got a uh, sadistic streak to it. It's politically on the nose, but coherent. And it's a thrilling, a thrilling film. Um, I would recommend it to anyone who's looking for something a little bit different. Um, I would. I've heard criticism, which I largely agree with, about the ending, but it didn't. It didn't bother me too much. This is just one of those films that. I think it's perfect to watch in lockdown as well because if you weren't sure about that kind of thing, if it's not your genre, you'd probably not watch it if you only had a limited amount of spare time. Um, but if you, all you've got to do is watch telly, uh, it's a great watch. Well, it's a great watch anyway, but especially in that in those circumstances. This sounds great. I'm going to have to watch this uh, right up my street. Love high risey type stuff. Love stuff like this uh, where it's just a bit dark and dystopian. <laughs> And all about people stealing food off each other. I'm game. It reminded me a little bit. And it, it, don't get me wrong, it's not really like this. But there was, possibly just because it's in a, well, a Latin language. It reminded me a little bit of the TV series 3%. I think you'd watch that as well, Clive, hadn't you? I have, yeah, and I really like yeah, that I mean, too, yeah. Don't get me wrong, it's a lot, lot more horrific than that. Um, hmm. um, there's certainly, the, there's an element of the politics, at least, anyway. Okay, yeah, I can imagine. Uh, I mean, apparently, I'm I'm not familiar with um, very many Spanish actors or actresses, but apparently um, the two main actors in this, um, so Ivan um, Maseig, I believe is how you say his name. I think that's the second different way I've said his name, I think. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you're probably going to get it right once, right? You'd assume so, Uh, yeah. Possibly not. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Oh god, this next this next one's even harder. Um, uh, Zorian Egelor. Uh, anyway, from what I've read, uh, they're both. <laughs> so that was just a noise. All <laughs> <laughs> right, Patrick. <laughs> Apparently, they're both ca- both cast against type in this film. Anyway, they're both known to be comic actors, and um, it, it's. I've always said this that really good comedians or comic actors are often the best when cast in the correct role at least uh, for drama or horror because uh, there is a skill to comic acting which is underappreciated I would say mm-hmm. yeah I, w- I was a huge fan of this and I've just noticed as well one of the production companies behind this is Mr. Miyagi Films so you know if you didn't if you didn't oh, like great. it already I'm straight off to watch this later scrap the rest of the plans <laughs> Let us know what you think, Clive. Um, Michael, will you be watching this? Well, it sounds good enough to watch at some point, yeah. Don't know when, but... Mm-hmm, ha- sure. So, like I said, I know you work with quite a lot of... Quite a few Spaniards. Uh, has nobody mentioned this to you? I recommend... No. Nope, don't think so. I remember when everyone... When they were all buzzing about the money heist. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Did you call it the money heist there? Yeah, I thought that's what it was. No, called. no, no. That's how you know you're getting old when you start adding the to something, you know. No, no, that's only social media platform. <laughs> <laughs> the Facebook. The, the Twitter, yeah. 
What about the the Cuba? The TikToks. <laughs> the, the Cuba. <laughs> the, the Cuba. Yeah. That's oh, a, right, that, that's a that stop in reference for people who don't get it. You know, uh, <laughs> the money heist sounds better than money heist to me. <laughs> so I think they've made an error there. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on to uh, actually, actually, isn't it called? I think the Spanish title is House of Paper or something like that, isn't it? Which is actually better than either of those. So. Yeah, yeah, much better. Yeah. Much better. Much better. Great image. Imagine a house of paper. Useless. <laughs> <laughs> you would be like, just bought this. It's, it's that shit. David Brent joke, isn't it? Uh, my pa- my parents used to own a paper shop till it blew away. <laughs> 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 Moving on. Um, you heard him there. He's on top form, obviously. Uh, Michael Johnson, what are you talking about today? Okay, well, I've got a sort of grab bag of various concepts to talk about. Hang on, is it a grab um, bag or a pick-and-mix bag? Um, a grab bag, to me, would be a large bag of the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell, what a pedant. <laughs> You're just going to keep no. bringing the same thing out of the bag. <laughs> In a way, yeah, it's both, actually. <laughs> Imagine that, come up with a term for that. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I'm gonna. Um, this is gonna be a little bit disjointed, but it's gonna centre around observations about various things that I've uh, taken in while I've been in lockdown. Um, I think at the moment it's very difficult to consume art without it being informed by the experience of the pandemic and the surrounding situation. So the first thing I want to talk about is hotels. Okay, um, so I found myself gravitating towards um, The Shining, which I rewatched. Uh, Kubrick's definitely one of my favourite directors, uh, and ob- obviously an absolutely fascinating creator. Um, and The Shining is is one one of my favourites of his, definitely. Um, and I think obviously it ties into the theme heavily of isolation. Uh, with the, the film's plot, which I think a lot of people are obviously going to be familiar with. Uh, the sh- I mean, the, 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 the phrase mise-en-scene may, have been, may as well have been invented for The Shining because the film's set design and architecture are so critical, uh, a part of what make it so memorable, I think. And basically all, all Kubrick films, especially later on, towards the back end of his career, are, are puzzle boxes, uh, which demand a lot of attention and rewatches, and I think there's, there's a whole cottage industry of uh, interpretations of The Shining, as anyone who has delved even remotely deeply into the film will know. Um, documentaries, even that attempt to analyse some of the possible meanings behind it, and as I mentioned, architecture seems to be very central to a lot of that, and. The interior of the hotel in the film is larger than the exterior, which is a very disorienting effect on the viewer. Doors and windows seem to move about and appear to be in the incorrect places. Uh, and I think that's it's the sense in which the architecture of the hotel mirrors the psychological state of the film, um, which is obviously quite macabre and confused. Uh, and what I found is 
this is reflected in some of the music that I've really uh, sort of drifted towards as well in the last week or so. Um, so I've revisited Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino by Arctic Monkeys, which again has a hotel theme. Of course, it's centered conceptually around a luxury resort on the moon. Uh, exactly the sort of place you might stop at the intergalactic petrol station on your way to. <laughs> and um, the, uh, the well, the whole concept of the album is set around a character who is basically a lounge pop crooner working at the hotel resort. And it's through that prism that Alex Turner's lyrics explore themes which are becoming ever more resonant in the current situation. So consumerism, technology... Uh, politics as well and I think the, the 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 way I mentioned the architecture of the Hotel in the Shining Mirrors, the sonic architecture of the album, which sounds pretty cavernous uh, it sounds very s- s- sort of s- sleek and shiny, like the screens that we've all we all have no option really but to be hooked to at the moment, so the computer screens, the TV screens, the phone screens, the black mirrors basically of which the the TV show is named after, of course. And, well, the lyrics on the album are, I mean, in, they're, they're highly observational of contemporary society, uh, and some of those conditions have only been amplified by what's been going on recently, I think. And, well, often they're very funny. They reference a lot of science fiction, uh, a lot of movies themselves, the lyrics, Blade Runner. I only noticed on this uh, revisit that the Vengeance trilogy... Is really? mentioned the uh, South Korean trilogy is mentioned in the lyrics. I'd never noticed that Which before. Song, Michael. That's uh, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but um, I'll see if I can find that out for you quickly. But uh, what also struck me massively was when I was listening to it, and um, in "She Looks Like Fun," one of the lyrics is uh, "No one's on the streets. We moved it all online as of March," which absolutely floored me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so, so yeah, I think, and Suspicious. Alex has already, yeah, quite a bit, isn't it? <laughs> um, Alex already mentioned uh, Ballard, and I've I mentioned Ballard on the last podcast when I was talking about the weekend, and even more applicable to some of the themes explored on that um, Arctic Monkeys album as well, I think. Uh, and I read a brilliant article in the latest New Statesman about Ballard, which suggested that the current situation around the world is so Ballardian as to basically be copyright infringement on his work. Um, and, yeah, it seems like his stock is rising at the moment because everything he he wrote and the themes he wove into his work are utterly prophetic. I mean, I think they already were, and then it applies uh, even more at the moment. Yeah, I've just checked there, Alex, and the lyrics are from um, the brilliantly titled, of course, Batphone. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yes, some interesting tie-ins there. And then around the same time as Tranquility Base Hotel was when Father John Misty's most recent album, God's Favourite Customer, um, came out. And that's based on um, his his own, two, I think it was two-month stay in a boutique hotel while struggling with depression. So, again... Hotels are used as an interesting um, way of exploring isolation and certain psychological states in both film and music. And I think a lot of it ties into a lot of things that are going on at the moment. So uh, I just like the way that you can, you know, 
films, even a film released there in 1980, and then two albums released basically at the same time, uh, 38 years later, can have this same sort of thread conceptually and thematically, and it can tie into things that are going on. And I just found that really interesting to explore. And this whole thing's ripe for much deeper exploration than I've just given it there. But that's just been some of the things that's been on my mind this week in relation to those al- uh, albums and film. Mm. It, in, it's interesting, um, the hotel concept. I think, I don't know about you, but um, whenever I travel by myself and I have to stay in a hotel, it does feel like a very surreal experience. I think especially when you stay in uh, like Premier Inn or Travel Lodge, not that I'm disparaging either brand, we're available for your advertising. Um, <laughs> but there seems to be an almost stifled kind of, uh, almost its own atmosphere in every room. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. The air doesn't feel quite right. Um, yeah, it's a very strange sort of setting, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Which mm. I think is obviously going to make it interesting for artists to to explore. Um, and obviously The Shining is originally a Stephen King work, of course, but I think um, the concept of setting was taken to a much further, you know, a much greater level by Kubrick in the way he treated it. Uh, and King famously disliked the film, didn't he? He, he hates um, it, yeah. Which, yeah, which I think is interesting because uh, I read the book a long time ago. Can't really remember much about it, but I do adore the film. I think it, you know, it it's everything everything that I like to see from cinema. Like I say, the detail that's gone into the set design, the thought, which are, they're all typical Kubrickian characteristics, really. But yeah, I, I think I think there's. You know that's why it's it's been dissected academically so heavily over the years. I think because there is there is so much interesting stuff there to pick apart. Mm. Well, I think in general, um, a lot of people have been watching um, kind of media uh, during the lockdown, which is claustrophobic. So you've mentioned things yeah. that set in a hotel. I, I read one article about somebody rewatching the film Lock uh, with Tom Hardy in. Where it's set entirely inside oh, right. his car, which is yep. I thought was a very underrated film. Um, even yep. me just talking about the platform, uh, that's set in just one stone room. All right, it's a gi- giant tower, but you're only ever inside one of the stone rooms at one time. Um, it, it's I don't think anyone consciously seeks out these things, but um, we seem <clears> to be drawn to them. There's definitely a subconscious at work, or at least in some of us. Uh- yeah, I think that's always the case, yeah, for sure. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Clive, have you been watching anything claustrophobic? Um, I've not really been watching anything, to to be honest. I've been listening to lots of stuff, obviously. I'm doing my... Uh, you may have heard the uh, <laughs> top five <laughs> albums of every year challenge thing yeah. has now gone off the pod and onto the pod website. So you can uh, go on there, and I've done 1960 so far. Wow. So I've been listening to loads of stuff. Um yeah. Regard regarding that, which has been great, I'm really enjoying it. Um, I bought some just before we went into this lockdown. I bought some good headphones at Headphone Amp, got into the whole uh, audio file thing, uh, <laughs> and nice. it's great. Yeah, sitting down, uh, making a real event of it, uh, listening to an album. I've been really enjoying that. So that's probably the thing that's most changed and that I'm going to most carry. And I've been reading loads as well. Okay, um, because. I always read a lot on holiday or in different when things get a bit different, and I guess maybe that fits into this for some reason. Um, so I've been reading a lot, but I'm hopefully going to carry that out. And I've actually I've I've just I've completely stopped playing games, not like 
not intentionally necessarily. I, I like I'm, I've moved more or less moved into L's uh, for this because obviously it would have been in uh, inessential to keep visiting each other. So we just thought, well, I'll move in. But so yeah, I haven't. I didn't have any consoles here to start with, which was the main reason I wasn't playing anything. I've since brought my Switch over, and I just got into a groove of like. Uh, learning piano, reading books, and playing board games with Elle, and listening to music. That I just kind of decided I didn't really need much else. We we watched a series together, like we watched Tiger King and uh, stuff like that. Um, but I've been less, I've not watched as many films and stuff as I normally do. But um, enjoying it, so it's good. So that that's the big change. It's probably more in a change of the uh, the uh, the variety of stuff. Um, not the like topic of the things, but the type of things, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. I've not necessarily started re- reading anything just because it seems apt in these times, but I um, really need to check out that Arctic Monkeys album again. It's one that I listened to a couple of times and I think it's one that will probably benefit really nicely from my lovely new headphones. Um, so... <laughs> I think, yeah, I think if you're looking for into sound quality, it'll sound pretty good mm-hmm. on there because it sounds so clean. That's what really struck me about it. It's very bass heavy as well. I remember when I um, when it came out, I remember saying on the podcast that I'd be interested to see, because Alex Turner obviously wrote the whole thing on a piano and clearly dominated the creative sessions for, of the album. I was interested to see if it affected the band relationships in any way and certainly how their fan base would react. And I know it, it's hated by a lot of previous Arctic Monkeys fans. But I think what's interesting is that it seems to have strengthened the band completely. Um, and as I say, Nick O'Malley's got no no room to complain, I don't think, because I think mm-hmm. his bass lines really shine on this album. And then, I don't know if he said it recently, but I only saw it recently, Matt Helders, the drummer, commented that playing previous Arctic Monkeys material now feels like the band are almost a karaoke act of their own material. So I feel like this album's totally... It's totally shifted the band a little bit, and I think they feel like they've moved on to a new phase where their previous material, their relationship mm. to their previous I mean, material. That's has a really good po- a a interesting point there about them being a um, karaoke act. Um, and it's something that I've heard before about. Um, I'm a big fan of, like, when I record stuff, not doing 100 million takes. Um, I try to get, get things down in, like, ideally less than five takes if I can. And even if something's not perfect, I'll stick with it. Without without like the obvious mistakes, then I'll like go over those. But just because I feel like once you've played it so many times, it does feel like you're covering your own song. And when it once it turns into that, you've lost all the kind of immediate yeah. electricity that that song had. Um, and I think you can get that back by the fact that like say live performances, you might have not played it for a couple of weeks and you play it again. I think it more it's something that happens to me more if I've played the song a lot in a row. Mm, yeah. On the same day, um, it turns into more of a just. Going through the motions of playing the song rather than actually playing it properly, which I imagine if you're a band like Arctic Monkeys and you've played your songs sure, yeah. thousands of times, must be a thing. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I mean, no. it's crazy to think because they're not exactly an old band. You know, they're all in their early thirties and they've been yeah, playing that exactly. material from the first album for fifteen years. <laughs> well, you, you don't get many other art forms you where it. you have to repeat yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, writers no, you don't write to. their own books again. Film. Actors yeah. don't perform yeah. the same performances, you know, you know, on stage again. Uh, well, mm-hmm. all right, they would during an initial theatre run, but you get my point. It's uh, I can imagine yeah. them getting bored of it or just feeling like they've moved on. Uh, That's a really good point, Al. I'd never really thought of it like that, but yeah, um, it's quite different like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, that is a good point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I th- but I think I think I remember 
I remember Alex saying this at the time, actually, when the album came out. Like, I know you like you like you were a fan of the album, Alex. I was, yeah. And uh, I remember you saying that it seemed to have solidified them as a legacy act. Like, they're, they're, they're already a significant band, but they, it looks like they have more terrain now to follow. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's a really significant album for them for that reason. Well, it, it, it's it, it's a bit of a left field turn, and I think um, yeah, you look all all the great act acts who've kind of survived over generations they've all had albums that are somewhat left field or different to their other uh, albums and I think um, whether or not it gains a following in future you know it'll be seen as important I think yeah I think so yeah and uh, at the moment as I say it's I think that's all been enhanced by what's going on because at the at the end of the day it is an album it's an album about some of the themes I mentioned and entertainment but ultimately, it's about capitalism, really, and everything about capitalism at the moment is turbocharged. And mm. the, I mean, you can easily interpret the entire pandemic as, you know, symptomatic of a kind of moral panic about capitalism. So any art that explores that sort yeah. of thing is going to become more relevant while that's going on. And and someone who and someone who thinks about he's obviously thought about an album and he's like okay I'm going to structure it like this I've, these are the points I'm going to make someone who thinks about music in that way is is the type of act that's going to survive and change yeah for sure yeah and that yeah. really ties it, that thinking about structure and that really just ties it back to Kubrick that's exactly the sort of thing I was yeah trying to trying to tease out mm. interesting um. Let's, as the Germans would say yes as the Germans or David Brent maybe um, <laughs> Clive um, do you have anything else you would like to talk about um, yeah I was going to just mention another um, board game which um, I've just checked it's available uh, boardgameprices.co.uk sometimes doesn't have the cheapest Amazon price it's worth checking both by the way and this is available I just wanted to check that because I, I find it a bit pointless to talk about a game that then people can't get or that's really expensive um, has, 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 has Bezos been on the phone since you were talking <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Bezos who doesn't need your money but will definitely kill your kids if you don't mention that it's cheapest on Amazon uh, <laughs> yeah I'm sure, um, I'm I'm sure, sure the che- Saudis were listening in while he rang you it's probably cheaper elsewhere I don't know um, but currently that's what's coming up which if it's uh, anywhere near the same price I usually go somewhere else because I prefer to avoid them if possible but um, anyway, Bezos didn't tell me to say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the next game I'm going to talk about is Santorini, which is a game, it's actually two to four players, but very much, I've not played it anything above two, and it's very much regarded as a, uh, a best at two players. So certainly a very good game for two players. Santorini, again, another game with a five by five grid, all about the five by five grids today, uh, but very different to uh, the previous game I talked about, Onitama. Santorini was designed by players... Uh, Gordon Hamilton, republished via Kickstarter in 2016 by Roxley Games, which is the version you can buy, which is a nice little version. It's very well produced. Um, Santorini, uh, like I say, it's 5x5 five five grid. You've both got two people each, uh, two like superhero, not super, it's more like gods, Athena and people like that. They're just, it's, but they're pretty generic, like it doesn't tell you which one's which. Um, so you've got two of those each, and you can essentially do. What, all you can do in your turn is move one, any space, so you can move any space to the right, diagonally, all the way around you, basically, just one space, and then you can build something again in that space that you've moved to, anywhere around where you've just moved to, if that makes sense, one space away. Um, you have, the building blocks are like three, there are these white building blocks based on the Greek, I think it's a Greek island, or it might be a Greek city, if we get a Santorini, I don't know, if, does anyone know? 
Um, I'm not 100%. Um, Me neither. Um, impromptu geography quiz. Yeah. I'm, I'm not... Oh, it's an island in the Aegean Sea. So I think it's an island. Um, so yeah, it's based on like Greek architecture. They've got these sort of really white buildings. Uh, they've got three levels to them. The, the bottom, and like a middle level and then a top. Um, the aim of the game, you win by getting one of your men onto the top of a building. All, all the women, you've got a man and a woman. Uh, onto the top of um, this building, which is obviously three layers high. The thing is, you can't just jump. You can't build a, a three-layer structure uh, and then jump straight to the top of it from the ground. You have to. You can only jump up one step at a time. So you'd have to have one on like that's one level high, get onto that. Then you'd have to have built one that's two levels high, got onto that, and then three levels high and got onto that to win. Um, the tricky thing is that the other person can stick a dome on top of your if you've if you've built a three layer structure and you're about to jump on it the other person can go next to that and then build a dome on top of it which then means you can no longer jump on top of it and that uh, that structure is now useless no one can jump on it uh, so it can block you off that way and it's just a really really clever game of trying to outmaneuver your opponent to get your one of your guys onto the top of a building without um him being able to block you and towards the end of the game you'll have like loads of you'll have built this kind of massive town of where it's quite tricky to move around because you can't uh, some of the once the tower's completely built with a dome on top you can't then go through that anymore so it's like you can build sort of walls and block off the opponent's players and it's really really clever uh, again a game that you think more in the moment than I think if you're really good at this game you'd probably do some forward planning I don't do loads but um, <laughs> you don't have to be able to it's a really simple the rules are dead simple and the thing that's great is there's also that's like the basic version of the game there's then some superheroes which once you've played it a couple of times using those rules you throw them in and you get kind of each you can figure out how you want you can do like a draft system of pick five each then um, work out which of the superheroes you want to pick or put some in the middle and you both pick which one you want or whatever you can do that however you want but basically you end up with one of the 20 odd superheroes there is and they've both got really different skills so one might be instead of winning by being on a third level block he can just jump off from a two level block and then that wins him the game or there's one that can move all the way around the outside uh, in one turn so it doesn't have to move one step at a time if they're going around the perimeter and um, weird things like that that you'd think oh my god that's way too powerful and it'll break the game but then combined with your power yours is also really good and you've got to figure out okay well their power's that my power's this how am i going to work these two together and because there's so many different ones every game's completely different so we've used maybe like six or seven of the superheroes each at this point and every game's been completely different and uh, occasionally usually Elle wins she's good at this game um and it's usually because she's figured out what my guy can't really do that her guy can do really well and then by the time i figured it out it's a bit too late um but yeah santorini is really really good another game like i say it's about 20 quid if you find it at a re don't pay t it's sometimes like 30 quid it, i'd still say it's worth it like it's a really good production that's decent uh, well-made plastic pieces the boards are nice um and the cards are nice again it feels good it doesn't feel cheap um, and yeah, highly recommended Santorini, a game that we play a lot and I think a game that any, anyone can pick up and anyone can have a fun time with. And again, really simple rules to start with, but a lot of depth to it and a lot of variation once you put the superhero powers in. Another one that might go on my list. I've literally just ordered your first recommendation, Clive. So <laughs> this is going oh, well. That was quick. <laughs> well, I had um, Bezos sent me a text saying and it just said on the text look at your chest and I saw a red dot moving uh, so <laughs> I've ordered it Jeff don't worry don't worry <laughs> on prime <laughs> good good uh, 
I'm so, gonna get that next day delivery. If um if 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 this goes well, I might order the what what was the name of the second game again? Sorry, Santorini. Yeah, the second one's called Santorini, like the like the Greek yeah. island. Yeah. I will order the game of Santorini on Amazon.co.uk. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, Bezos is loving it. He's currently sent out a hitman after me, so this might be my last podcast. <laughs> Apparently, you should never buy it from anywhere else. <laughs> Why would you? Um, okay. Um, well, I guess it's my turn again. I'm just going to talk very briefly about um, two TV shows, um, one of which you've definitely heard me talk about before, um, Better Call Saul. Um, season five is currently going week by week on Netflix. Um, the last episode is due out on Tuesday, so I can't give you an overall perspective. But I just wanted to talk about how fucking excellent it still is. Um, it's obviously a spin-off of Breaking Bad, as everyone knows. Um, set before Breaking Bad, uh, chronicling the rise of Saul Goodman, otherwise known as Jimmy McGill. Um what an unbelievably good show this is. And I think I've said it before, and I said before the podcast started, it, this feels like it's been one of the most underrated TV shows for years, and it feels like a lot of people are critically catching up with it now and realising what an amazing piece of TV it is, especially if you liked Breaking Bad. This is a continuation of that um, kind of exciting, um, you know, thrilling kind of st- narrative storytelling mixed in with a warmth and wit that isn't common. Um, and really good performances. I mean, um, Bob Odenkirk, uh, another comic comic actor, who um, was probably, you know, in Breaking Bad, largely a comic foil, uh, proves his range in this. And um, what was really interesting to me was um, Frankie Boyle um, has recently caught up on all of Better Call Saul. And he made a comment saying how Rhea Seahorn, who plays um, Saul Goodman's uh, wife, or Kim Wexler, um, is probably the best performer on TV, which she responded to and was very complimentary. And he makes a very good point. Outstanding kind of um, unshowy acting. Um, I honestly think that this is better than Breaking Bad. Um, however, it couldn't exist without it. So, yeah, you know. Um, I'm interested to see where they go from here. Um Jimmy McGill is, in this season, spoilers, finally Saul Goodman, and finally starting to act like Saul Goodman. Um, I hope they kind of wrap it up sooner rather than later, because I don't want see, to see them go too far, but um, this is comfortably the highlight of my lockdown week at the minute. Um, anybody else a fan of this, or anybody else watching? I'm guessing not, but... Well, I've, I've never seen Breaking Bad for a start, so there wouldn't be a lot of... I don't think it would make sense to watch this, obviously. No, probably um, not. But it does... Ex- I've, I've heard that people say that they, th- they think this is better than Breaking Bad before. And given that, as an outside observer, I know the acclaim Breaking Bad had, I find that extremely exciting, as someone who could go on to watch both, potentially. I mean, I'm, at the moment I'm watching... As I've mentioned on the podcast before, I'm still in the middle of Mad Men at the moment, which I'm loving. And the idea that there are more shows of that calibre out there to, to go into later obviously is is a great thing. What I, th- what I find is amazing about Better Call Saul is it actually shares a DNA with Breaking Bad in the sense that the first season is probably the weakest, maybe even the first two. Both entertaining, excellent seasons, but um, I think it really catches its, um, you know, you know, reaches its stride in its third season. 
and it just becomes incredible. And I think this season is arguably the strongest yet in its fifth. Um, and yeah, I, I couldn't be more excited about it. I think I think it it, it took a big risk. Um, we know that Sol Goodman makes it out of these you know these series alive. We know that the characters who are recurring from Breaking Bad do. Yet somehow it has incredible tension. I mean, there's a, a recent episode, um, which I won't spoil too much, set in the desert, um, which is a absolute masterful mix between, you know, thriller and comedy, um, striking a balance that is so difficult to do. Um, Clive, I know you don't tend to watch much TV, so I'm guessing you haven't seen this. Um, no, I haven't. And I've been, I've, I think I got like two seasons into the break. Came back into Breaking Bad, but I nearly put it at the start bad. there, getting fucking old. Yeah, uh, and then I posted about it on the Twitter. Yeah, shortly before making a uh, a sort of a, a silly video that's three seconds long on the TikToks. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I haven't. So I need to ke- finish that off first, which I'm, I'm sure I will do at some point. It's something I'll probably get into. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure it'll happen at some point in my life. I just don't know when. And then afterwards, it seems like this is well worth it, which is good. Yeah, um, and it's a good point that you make about. Um, yeah, I always find it skillful if a film manages to, yeah, increase uh, despite you knowing what's going to happen. Uh, you know, creates tension. I think that's the thing, mate. Particularly in like historical dramas and stuff, where you know what the outcome is. Mm. Um, yeah, it's always a, a, a skill that I admire when a film does that. Um, and also, like, I guess it means that, for example, if you a film holds up better on second watching, first time you might not, have, second time you might know what's going to happen, but if it's still got um, that tension or or something else about it that makes it interesting besides just what's happening, um, that makes it really great. I think it's quite easy to make a program that's like cliffhanger at the end of an episode. Oh, I really want to know what happens next episode. Um, it's more difficult to make it actually good. If yeah. that makes sense, and if you're doing it like this, then you have to make it actually good because you can't really drop too many cliffhangers. <laughs> I, I think the ultimate example of where you know what's going to happen, but um, you know, a film really achieved amazing tension is Zero Dark Thirty. We know that Osama bin Laden mm. gets caught and killed, yeah. But try finding a more tense scene in it in all the film. I think a, yeah, another one that falls into that bracket is Argo. I think yes, yeah. I've not seen Argo, I need to watch it. But yeah, Zero Dark Thirty, absolutely, that, that final scene. Oh my God. <laughs> that is. Argo's like, I think Argo's a really good sort of Hollywood-style film. You know, it's it's not going to change your life or anything like that, but it's, I think it's well worth a watch. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other one I'm going to very quickly mention, because I've only seen one episode, is um, a series just started on BBC Two, I believe. Um, it was, it's on, on, uh, on Hulu in America. Uh, a latest series called Devs, which is um, the most recent project of somebody who I've been following for years, and I think everybody's quite familiar with their work, uh, Alex Garland, uh, more famous for Ex Machina and more and Annihilation. Uh, he also wrote The Beach back in the day. Um, this is a sci-fi series um, centred around in the fairly nearish future, around a Silicon Valley uh, mega company somewhat in the vein of google or apple um starring nick offerman who's better known as a comic actor there we go again in a serious role and sonia mizuno i've only watched the first episode Uh, i won't say anything about it but it gripped me um i'm a huge fan of alex garland i think he's 
possibly one of the most interesting filmmakers or film writers or both um, working today. And it's interesting to see him foray into TV. Um, so I can't tell you if it's any good overall or not, but the first episode was excellent. Um, and I just think his name being attached should should attract you. Um, I hadn't heard of it until it, it was already out, so it was a nice little surprise. I um, I saw a terrible take on Ex Machina this week on Twitter. What was that? Uh, so someone said it was uh, from top to bottom the possibly the worst film they'd ever seen, and I mean if you if you uh, they didn't like the plotting or characters apparently mostly it seemed, but if you don't like the film that's one thing, but if you think it's genuinely one of the worst films you've ever seen, then to quote Partridge again, you're just bloody wrong. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a scenario where that could be the worst film you've ever seen. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, that. maybe if you've only seen um, <laughs> Citizen Kane and <laughs> I don't know The Godfather, <laughs> you know, it's the worst film you've seen. You, you know, you're basically Michael Owen, but um, but the opposite way around. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, to be fair, the guy I can't remember who he was, but he was blue ticked. He was some sort of cultural commentator, which just made me even more astounded. But uh, and you know, obviously, we love contrarian opinions here, don't we? We know that. <laughs> but um, but the, I mean, in fairness, the 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 tweets or tweets were were um, underscored by lots of uh, comments from followers saying how wrong that opinion was. <coughs> uh, I know an opinion can't be wrong, but you know that gave me some solace at least. It it does. <laughs> It does feel like some people, well, especially kind of blue tick commentators, occasionally have to find a way to be different. To yeah. you know, it's better to be infamous than famous. Uh, <laughs> Another partridgeism. Yeah. <laughs> infamous than yeah. what? Hummus. Hummus. Yeah. I, I don't want to. I don't want to be infamous. I want to be famous. Oh dear. But yeah, but I was going to say Annihilation. I remember when I remember saying on the podcast at the time that I wasn't quite sure what I thought of it, but in hindsight, I think I really like it and the messaging of it. Uh, again, I know it sounds like a broken record, and it's getting ridiculous to just channel every bit of art that you consume through the prism <laughs> of coronavirus. But it's become hugely relevant again because we've seen people trying to attribute racial characteristics to the virus. And trying to attribute in Donald's in Donald Trump's case, you know, trying to assess the intelligence of the virus, and I think <laughs> the, the whole messaging of annihilation was that you know viruses don't discriminate like that, you know, and that's not the way they behave, or at least that's what I've that's what I've taken from it over time. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, I think they're both great films. Would would you give this a go, Michael Devs? Yeah, I knew I knew that Garland was involved in a TV show. In a way, when a, when a filmmaker's starting to build up an, a portfolio of interesting and exciting films like that, it frustrates me a bit when they go into TV as well because it involves so much more commitment. Mm-hmm. I'm like, where am I going to find the time to do that? But yeah, anything with his name on, I'd look at, yeah. Clive, does it tickle your fancy? Yeah, absolutely. This is well <laughs> up my street. I'm going to check this out. Um, again, loved Annihilation, loved Ex Machina. Um, on your point about the guy hating it, I feel like <clears throat> I've mentioned, I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go massively into it, but Twitter has become a kind of place of where you're only allowed to either love or hate something. Yeah. And uh, you can't possibly be in the middle ground, Just which I've never area. understood. Like, I listen to tons of, tons of albums. It's the thing I review the most. It's very rare that I hate an album. I don't 
because yeah, exactly. if, if someone if it's like well thought of chances are it's got something good about it and i'm not going to hate it um there's somewhere i'm like okay well i'm not massively keen on listening to that again but i've taken something from it um i don't know i just there are some that i've i've consumed some art which i hate but it's generally art which is thought of as bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, where it's just like okay, well, this is offensive, and I hate it. Well, it's like um, when but... you, it's like when you. Well, we mentioned rate your music, and that's obviously it's been. I've mentioned now so many times what a, an important resource it's been for me. I think I've rated like three albums, one out of ten on there, or something, and maybe like one film. But then you see people who've got thousands of albums like rated with one out of ten. I'm like, <laughs> I couldn't. I don't think I could spend my time doing that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Michael, what was out of interest? Can you tell us a film and an album that you've rated as one out of ten? Yeah, the film is one that I think might actually be one of the worst films I've ever seen. Uh, knowing the Nicolas Cage film, Knowing, <laughs> I had the okay. misfortune of sitting through that. And um, yeah, well, this is the thing. I think I find albums. I wouldn't say I hate any albums, but albums that I'm going to rate atrociously like that are generally are generally going to be from artists who I love. And therefore, feel so disappointed by when they sink that low, and that's okay. why I know that one of the albums I rated one out of ten was Nastradamus by Nas, um, re- released only five years after Illmatic. And you know, if you ju- if it was just an artist churning out albums like that, it probably wouldn't be a one out of ten. And this is where obviously subjectivity becomes so interesting. But because it's it's an artist capable of so much better, that's when you feel inclined to go that low on it. And it's a one out of ten there, even though it does have a couple of salvageable tracks on there. So you know, this mm. this is where the, the judgment of art is is all very interesting, like that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think the closest one I've got to that would be um, <clears throat> the counselor, the film. Um, you know, Cormac McCarthy is yeah. pretty much my favourite author. Um, Ridley Scott, maybe not my favourite director, had done plenty of great films. A cast like Michael Fassbender, um, Javier Bardem, Brad Pitt. Sounds like yeah. it's going to be amazing. Was utter dross. Um, I th- I'm not sure I'd give it one out of ten, but th- that would be the closest <laughs> example I have to that. Um, yeah, but yeah, and it, even more disappointingly, it seems like it's going to be the last thing McCarthy does. I think possibly. Yeah, Appar- apparently he had another. He's got another novel in the works, but he's in his 80s now. I, d- I don't know if he'll ever complete it. Uh, but yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Or, or whether he's capable of writing that well again, I don't know. But uh, I mean, he's 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 got a back catalogue to be proud of, so I won't be too disappointed. But mm. oh, for sure, yeah, yeah. Um, Michael, you're up last. Do you have anything else you'd like to discuss? Yeah. Has anyone got anything else to talk about? Because if not, I'll just round everything up now. It won't take me long. No, that's all I've got for now, or at least until next pod. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I'm gonna okay. do maybe some some a couple of uh, card games next pod, uh, which people will like, but. Cool. All right. I'll save them. <laughs> Sound well. The other things I wanted to mention were again the, uh, some more music that I've been listening to um, in isolation has basically been the emo rap movement, uh, as it's come to be known. It's Interesting. A movement that a, a, a late twenty tens movement really that I think is already on a downwards trajectory. Um, the reason it's on a downwards trajectory, sadly, is that most of its biggest names are dead already. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's a genre that has its roots, I think, in certainly in Kanye West's 808s and Heartbreak album, which um, was a huge left field move at the time, back in 2008 when it came out, which then subsequently influenced another wave of artists like Drake, most notably, and Kid Cudi. 
And then you have the SoundCloud rap movement, uh, which I think was was a lot more electronic-focused in the mid-2010s. And then out of that, emo rap is another mutation that spawned off from that. Um, and it's... I mean, it's been a it's been a movement that has been defined by um, not being afraid to delve into more rock based music and sonics. Uh, I think a, a large appeal of the music is textural, and this is where its roots go back to eight oh eights and heartbreak. Uh, the use of um, auto tune, the voice as an instrument, uh, as just an additional part of the um, the sonic mixture. Uh, so. That, that that they're definitely defining characteristics of it. Um, in terms of its relation to emo, I think we're talking much more about the sort of noughties pop punk fused emo rather than the earlier nineties um, origins of the genre. But but both could probably be tied in 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 certain ways. Um, and there's also in in some artists there's been a bit more of a, a new metal focus as well. Um, Certainly in terms of lyrics, uh, a lot of them are about pain, vulnerability, isolation. Again, another reason why I think it's it's been something I've been listening to at the moment. Some of this music is very poignant, but it's also been controversial. Um, it's clearly very... In terms of content, it's pretty downbeat, even if not always matching musically. And... Um, I mean, the the stalwarts of the genre really are. Um, I think it's it's been heavily influenced by the Swedish artist Young Lean, but he isn't usually cited a lot. Uh, but he definitely should be mentioned. Uh, but I think the big artists in America were Lil Peep, um, especially with his uh, mixtape Hellboy, who seemed to calcify a lot of the characteristics of the genre. Juice World, who died of a drug overdose last year. Uh, late last year, a lot of people will probably remember. Uh, Lil Peep also died of a drug overdose in 2017. And uh, also XXX who is certainly... I think a lot of people would say the figurehead of the movement, but certainly its most controversial figure as well. True, some really horrifying and disturbing uh, revelations about his private life. And I think, again, this is the difficulty of wh- where you separate an individual and their art and clearly a very troubled individual, and a lot of that fed into the darkness of his music, which is structurally very fragmentary. I think it'll be interesting to see if the critical standing of this sort of music changes over time. I think even though it's been very commercially successful and and moved straight to the top of the the charts over in the US, uh, and I think it is a very American brand of music that hasn't really translated commercially anywhere else, um, at least to the same extent uh, I think critics have largely ignored it or they haven't really been all that enthused by it I don't know if that'll change over time but I think it's really interesting music and uh, it's been it's it's been one of, so far it's been one of the uh, the most notable movements to come out of Generation Z that's why I'm very interested in it uh, and obviously it's another example of where a lot of the time we do think of it being impossible to create new genres now and they do tend to be amalgamations of previous genres so this does fall into that bracket for sure but I think also it's um, it's an example of where hip-hop does continue to try and push forward and break down barriers 
in a way that some genre, where some genres have stagnated a little bit. And um, and again, it's just my evidence of the cultural ubiquity of hip hop uh, generally, but especially in the US. But yeah, I, th- I think there's, th- I'm assuming this will happen with Juice World. Um, obviously, his death was pretty recent, but uh, XXX Tentacion. Two posthumous, well, technically three because his second album, as such, was released posthumously just after he was murdered in 2018. Um, but another couple of albums of outtakes and unreleased material have been released since then. And I think they've that, unfortunately, I think that's happened with a little, a, not, not really enough um, thought and treatment because they seem to have been received pretty poorly, although uh, str- more strongly commercially again. So, but from the material that I've heard from those albums, it seems completely um, undercooked, which is obviously in the circumstances is is perfectly explainable. But I think when you're going to do posthumous releases like that, they deserve to be more thoroughly developed, even if that doesn't really fit into the aesthetic of the actual movement that the artist comes from. Uh, but I think you can see that despite the controversy about him, uh, XXX Tentacion's music has been, as I said, to people of a certain age, uh, it seems to have given them a lot of um, encouragement and seems to have been quite inspirational to a lot of people who have problems that may have um, mirrored his own. And I think I've seen comparisons drawn in terms of the... Um, you know the importance to a certain generation of people to Kurt Cobain's role within grunge, and even though, even though the, sort of the um, the aesthetical touchstones of emo rap haven't, I mean they haven't become as ubiquitous as grunge did. Grunge very quickly turned into, you know, a cultural avatar in the US and beyond. And that hasn't really happened here, but in a way, the success of it commercially suddenly uh, has mirrored that. So I think there are comparisons to draw, uh, but extremely different people, that's for sure, um, as anyone who knows anything about Corbyn would know. But as I said, what, what's happened really is that, that these deaths have made a mockery of the idea of a 27 club. These artists have all died in their very early 20s, and I think that's something that is inseparable from the atmosphere of the music. Uh, and it's very tragic, and obviously that is reflected again in the sort of content of the music. Uh, you could also throw in arguably a bigger star than any of those three in Lil Uzi Vert, who just released his um, his second studio album, Eternal Attack. It's an excellent album uh, that I'm not going to go into in as much detail here, in my opinion. And he does share a lot of the same musical characteristics, and he has uh, topically explored some of the same themes of... Um, was essentially despair in his previous work but I think that doesn't apply quite so much on this new album but it has in the past so he's certainly tied into this uh, into this movement and has worked with some of the uh, the artists I've just mentioned before uh, but s- somehow I, I t- class him as technically slightly separate from the same movement but he's definitely involved in it and is, is essentially if you want to include him it would be its major commercial star and is thankfully still out there uh, releasing music. But I think his stuff has, has always been a bit less despairing than the other artists I mentioned. Uh, so that's why I mentioned that I think it's the movement is is already on its downward tra- trajectory now, simply because of a lack of of, uh, of leading stars who are still with us making music, unfortunately. Uh, and I think it's left to 
artists like Ohio's Trippy Red, who is is still only 20, I believe, but has been very inconsistent with his music, which has been quite prolific, the number of releases he's had. Um, <clears throat> I thought his uh, his debut mixtape, A Love Letter to You, with tracks like Romeo and Juliet and Love Scars, is uh, actually quite an important document of the emo rap scene. Uh, but I think since then, as I said, there's been a little bit of disappointment. So I'm still, it's, he's still someone who I'm following and who has had his own uh, considerable personal problems uh, and I don't want to see a repeat of what we've seen with some of the already mentioned artists there. Uh, so it's a sort of troubled scene, but one that I think has been very interesting and hasn't had. It's had some criti- It's had the critical focus, but it certainly hasn't had the acclaim. I think, uh, and I'm not saying it necessarily should have, uh, but I think it's it's always interesting to delve into some of these movements when they're not getting the, they're not they're not being lauded, but they are clearly significant as reflected by their commercial performance. So it's, that's just something I've been doing while I've been in isolation, really. Not a genre I'm familiar with at all, uh, so I have nothing to add. But Clive, you might. Who knows? Um, no, not massively. Um, it's really interesting, though. What would you say? There might not be an answer to this, but what would you say is the essential album in the genre, or would, is it one of those genres where you're more <laughs> talking about songs? Yeah, I think. Yeah, what well, it, it is a little bit like that, but there are some albums out there, as, as I referred to, that um, that reflect it. So I mm-hmm. think. If you're looking for a str- if you're looking for the strongest album of any of those artists I mentioned, then it's probably um, Love Is Rage Two, Little Uzi Vert's debut album. But I would also put in the mix Hellboy by Lil Peep, which I mentioned. And personally, I would even throw in Question Mark by XXX Tentacion. I think it's his strongest work and was released just just after he was murdered. Yeah, so oh. I, those are all albums I would suggest. Yeah. I'll check those out because I like rap and I like emo, so I should like this. And, and certainly some of the, the artists that you mentioned I've listened to and I've liked. So, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely um, interesting. And I like what you're saying about the amalgamation of genres. I think that is the way things are kind of going forward, isn't it? Um, Seems like with, it, yeah. With <laughs> it's, it's, it is very difficult to come up with something completely new, but it's very... Um, it's not easy at all, but it's an interesting thing is to mix genres together in an effective way that doesn't just sound like a mashup and makes yeah. it sound like it's very much its own thing and not necessarily those two things put together, if you know what I mean. That's the thing, yeah. I think it's a very difficult thing to do without it sounding jarring, and some of these acts mm. have done it, even though they might have been... You know, they're still they're very immature and adolescent artists, as reflected by their age, and we're never going to get to see how they would have developed. That's the sad thing about it, but... Even at that early stage, they had managed to successfully mash those things up. It was a real, yeah. It was a real movement. So yeah, definitely. I'd be interested in yeah. what you thought of those. I mean, yeah, emo is a genre that kind of thrives in that kind of community, isn't it? It's when the you know when your emotions are at your strongest, that kind of thing. When uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's a thing that I think when you get older, you probably I don't, you, I don't want to say grow out of, but you do in a way. Um, I still love, love listening to emo stuff, but um, I would probably struggle to write it. Um, yeah, because <laughs> you don't. You, you, as you, the older you get, the more you sort of flatten out and just. <laughs> I still get angry about politics, but that's not really emo. It's more. Uh, so I yeah, still get angry, um, but but yeah, a, I think that's probably passion, why it is. It's a passionate and expressionist sort of a, a genre of of music and expression, isn't it? So it's like, yeah, it ties into a certain time and a certain sort of feeling for sure. Mm. I think. And I think you mentioned energy can die later. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you mentioned about uh, this is a word I always struggle with. Is it posthumous? How do you say it? Posthumous. Yeah. Posthumous. Posthumous. Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, yeah. Speaking of that, um, it's not it's not a uh, rap, emo rap album at all, but um, the new album by uh, Mac Miller, who obviously died in 2018, so this is a mm-hmm. posthumous album, uh, Circles, is really, really good. And from what I can tell, I don't know exactly uh, how much of it was recorded before. I know he recorded it hand-in-hand with his previous album, the name which I forget because I didn't listen to it, which came out in 2018, I think. Um, and it was supposed to be kind of a dual thing. And I think a lot of this was recorded, but a lot of it also wasn't. And um, it's, you know, had producers working on it and stuff. And it's been, in my opinion, lovingly done. And it seems to have been well critically received. It's really good. I definitely recommend people uh, listen to it. And I think it's quite rare that, as you've mentioned, a posthumous, bloody hell, that word, album is pretty hard to pretty hard to pull off. Like there's a there's a Bob Marley one. It's not his best. It's not horrible, but uh, <laughs> often it's a bit of a cash grab. Um, and and this does not That's seem like that at all. Yeah. It really depends what's left in the uh, in the vault, doesn't it? And then it depends whose hands it falls into, what they decide to do with it. Yeah. And I think getting that sort of alchemy correct is very challenging, for sure. And obviously, Mac Miller was another artist uh, taken too young, but I've never actually listened to him. I know he's got quite a following. Um, Same. I hadn't. Um, when I started listening to it, I didn't realise he was dead. And then I looked him up and I was like, oh, it was that guy. Because I remember the, the whole thing about when he, when he died. Uh, yeah. I just didn't put the two and two together that it was the same person. Yeah, um, yeah it's really good. It's, it's quite easy listening. Uh, like smooth, It's hip-hop-y, but smoothy. Kind of hip-hop, a singer-songwriter-y mix, I'd say, with electronic-y production. But got a really smooth voice. Uh, sings quite... Um, it's pretty heartfelt and honest lyrics. I like it. I like it. And like I say, that album is really, really good. So it's obviously been lovingly done. Um, yeah, which is good to see. It is, yeah. I kept thinking. Uh, oh, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, Clive. I kept hearing, and I'm not sure if it's the sound quality here, but I kept thinking you were saying post post hummus, which is a, <laughs> an era that I don't want to live in, frankly. Uh, yeah, the new post hummus album. Yeah, <laughs> post. I maybe that's a great name. Oh for, god! What, what genre are post hummus? <laughs> Um, I think they're also prog rock, <laughs> <laughs> but like a prog, oh, prog, progressive, even more I th- progressive. I prog. think we say also prog rock. I'm not sure, listeners. I'm not sure. Oh. We, we were recording <laughs> when we uh, when we had a discussion about the uh, the comedy prog rock band Sentient Bid. <laughs> Entirely <laughs> no, fictional, we I should add. Yeah, <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> yeah, not anymore. <laughs> Sentient bin. I forgot. <laughs> I, in my head, they use like lots of. Um, they've got a sort of core of traditional instruments: guitar, drums. But then they use a lot of experimental stuff, like yeah, literally pan a, pipes, bin, a bin. Pan, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, a, a bin's more experimental. Didn't uh, Slipknot basically have that? I think they just had a guy. One of obviously nine members. I think one of them just walloped a big, big, a big bin or something with a club. Pretty sure that was. I think I think <laughs> sentient bin. One of the main instruments is just one of the classic British um, green wheelie bins. The lid just being slammed back and forth. You know the, the sound of the wheels on cobbled streets. Uh. <laughs> That's how every album opens up. <laughs> just wheeling the bin into the studio, and then. <laughs> anyway. Oh their uh, uh, the vocals should obviously be auto tuned. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Se- yeah, to represent the you know the voice of the bin, the sense <laughs> of the bin, <laughs> or vocoder, even better. <laughs> I I did have one other thing I wanted to Go just ahead, mention Michael. briefly. 
All right. It is Jeff Bezos related. So oh, okay. Be pleased to know. <laughs> well, hang um, on. <laughs> I don't want. I don't want his sniper coming back for me. <laughs> it's all right. I'll. I'll he, he can blame me for this. But, um, I was watching John Oliver this week, and I was inspired to rewatch Sorry to Bother You, uh, which oh, I know yeah. was my, f- my favorite film of 2018. Uh, and possibly my favourite film of the 2010s. I really do rate it that highly. I think it's it, really good. It, it reflects my worldview quite strongly. <laughs> um, you've you've seen it, Clive? Yeah, it was. Um, I can't remember if it was my number two or number one. It was very high up. I loved it. I couldn't remember if you'd seen it at the time. Okay, that's good because I'm uh, in that case. I am going to use spoilers here because they're worth using just to make the ridiculous of Jeff Bezos even more evident. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I was watching John Oliver, and I heard that, um, well, there was a section on um, how poorly workers are being treated during the coronavirus crisis, and there was one guy who was attempting to organise, I think, a strike at Amazon. And at a meeting that Jeff Bezos was present at, apparently, uh, they had the idea of making him the face, this guy, this employee, the face of the uh, strike movement in order to try and undermine it, because they said he was inarticulate and an idiot, basically. And that is basically a plot point from Sorry to Bother You. Uh, I mean, Steve, uh, I mean, Army Hammer, superbly cast as the ridiculous CEO, Steve Lift. Um, and obviously in the film, he is turning people into horse humans in order to have a ready supply of compliant and uh, strong labour uh, because they're superior to humans who you actually have to give rights and money to, of course, famously. Uh, <laughs> even though Amazon do try not to do that, and um, yeah, and then obviously uh, Lakeith Sanfield's character Cassius Green, uh, Steve Lift's plan in the film is to turn him into one of these horse humans and install him as the company's own sort of as in his own words uh, the Martin Luther King of horse humans, <laughs> and I just thought this incredible plot point, which I think is so reflective of the behaviour of actual CEOs. Uh, you know, which just, just that's just how life imitates art. It's the ridiculous <laughs> thing that Amazon seemed to be wanting to attempt in a way, and uh, yeah, not exactly the same, obviously. But uh, and it just it, I was I was searching Twitter thinking there must be an accidental Steve Lift account, but there isn't, and I'm sort of inspired to start that. <laughs> I think you're the man. Do it, Michael. I think it'll be very niche. I'm going to say that. But, um... <laughs> I'll follow. I'm genuinely tempted, <laughs> uh, and it will, of course, start with me finding an article on on that incident. <laughs> but yeah, so I rewatched the film last night, and it's just—I mean, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous, but it's an absolute riot. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's such a great film. I really, I'm, re- I'm excited to see a second film from Boots Riley. He is apparently developing one, and I can't even begin to imagine what that'll look like. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited too. He's great. <laughs> It's funny how stuff like that happens. Um, you think in a film this is way too ludicrous to be true, um, <laughs> yeah. and then something happens. And it's it's a similar like we were doing earlier when we were trying to find the tagline, and we found that uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the intergalactic petrol station on the moon. You're just like I was reading it, thinking this is an April Fool's joke. It's not. It's real life. Yeah, it really had public discourse has moved so far beyond satire. <laughs> And it's just like I just love the way that scene is just it totally encapsulates like the. Um, you know, this absurdist sort of disdain that the character of Steve Lift clearly has for, like, race rights. Or any rights. Yeah, and, and obviously rights in general. And just before that, there's one of the film's best scenes where 
I can't obviously quote from it because that would be grossly offensive, but he forces Green's character to rap, and then the audience mm-hmm. responds uh, superbly when he just he just basically boils it down to it, it's not ignorant white people's perceptions of hip hop by just repeatedly using the n word, mm-hmm. and the crowd responds rapturously, and I think that is just such the perfect encapsulation of a certain type of person's view of hip-hop and black culture that's just so, so superbly written. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think I'm going to have to rewatch it. Um, I might even give my second viewing review next week. Um, cool. Exciting. If, if it's next week or possibly the week after, but there will definitely be a third lockdown podcast, that's for sure, guys. Um Yeah. yeah. He's been Michael Johnson. I have. And he thinks he's got, a, got away with it, but he hasn't. Clive, what time is it? <laughs> I thought I had. I thought I had. But actually, I'm, ha- I'm glad you haven't, because this is the, I actually want to plug something. Uh, but I'm going to do the usual plug first. Plug time! At Stick Roundcast on Twitter. You can follow us on there. And, um, yeah, we post when there's a new episode and stuff like that, which is handy to keep hold of. Keep an eye on uh, facebook.com slash stick around if you don't use Twitter. We just repost, regurgitate everything on there. It's like a feed of vomit. Um, <laughs> and really useful vomit. And then we also stick around podcast.com as our website, a lovely website. We've got um, every single episode on there. Click on episodes, obviously. Loads of articles, which I'll go, I'm going to plug something in a minute. I'm not going to go there yet. Um, you can go contact us. There's a little form you can just fill in uh, to send us a question. We'll answer it on the podcast. We will answer anything you send. Anything you send. Anything. Really? Um, wow. I, I actually got the an interesting spam email yesterday related to this. It's not, really, <laughs> it's not related at all, but it's funny. Um, which, you know when an email sent from like 321blahblahblahblahblahhotmail.com and I'm just like, how has this got through your spam filters, Microsoft? What the fuck? And then it's like, we have found an image of you. We've we've recorded you while you were watching porn. And we're going to send it. To, this is literally what it said. And I was like, this is this can't be real. Um, and we're going to send it to your relative in three days if you don't send us $2,000 to this link. I'm like, what the... Is anyone going to fall for that? And if surely you should be asking for a more reasonable sum of money. Because I can imagine someone might be like, oh, if it's a tenner, I'll, I'll, I'll just give me it because I don't want to hedge my bets. Uh, $2,000? No. And if you had this proof, you'd have sent a, a, a fucking clip, a, a clip of it or something. Jesus Christ. It's, but I was just like... I, it baffled me that that got through spam filters. It was so obviously spam. I was just like, I don't understand. It wasn't even... Because often something gets through and you're like, okay, well, this looks exactly like a PayPal email. I can see how it's got through. No, not this one. Well, Anyway, we've gone off track. Was this sent to you personally or to the podcast account? Uh, <laughs> to the podcast account. So I don't uh, know which sorry, one. Guys, how could they know, they know which one was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. Unless it was alleging that we were collectively doing it. Wow! Uh, lockdown, lockdown was... party. <laughs> that, that'd be the real shame—the fact that we weren't socially distanced. <laughs> well, Clive, I yes, think that's I don't even, know. I think that's even better than the junk email I got the other day, where it said benefits of the COVID nineteen lockdown: uh, replenish your fortune with Bitcoin. Jim Davidson was once broke, but now he's got Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, if I'm gonna get, if I'm gonna get my financial advice from anybody, it's gonna be from the racist former host of Big Break. <laughs> uh, 
Anyway, on that bombshell. Uh, um, see you next time, guys. Do... Oh, sorry. Whoa, whoa. Oh, fucking hell. I've, you missed, I've, I've just skipped my other plug. I fucked it. I fucked it. Go You've on. got a personal plug to me. I've got a personal plug. It does relate to our website, though. Um, I mentioned it earlier, just quickly. Uh, I'm writing about the top five albums of every year from 1960 to the present day. It's going to take me, I guess, three to four years uh, <laughs> as, as a project. Um, yeah, basically the top five albums as rated on ratingmusic.com. I rate them and put them in my own order and chuck in a few others from the year that sound appealing. I've put 1960 up. Um, it's got We've got Etta James. We've got... Miles Davis, we've got John Coltrane, we've got Hank Mobley, we've got some other people. Um, lots of jazz, lo- loads of jazz, and there's going to be quite a lot of jazz until we get to about 65, I think. Um, but enjoying it, it's a great little fun project. Have a read, you just go click on articles, it's there. Uh, on the website, stickgroundpodcast.com. Al, you can, uh, you, can, you can take back over now. I don't really have a line to end now. Um, Michael, oh, have you got something you can sign us off with? Bloody hell, that's pressure, isn't it? That'll do. See you next time, guys. Yeah, I actually wrote that line. Stick around. (laughs) Stick Stick around. Thank you all for listening. Rest assured that you have found the best podcast in the universe it's stick around